hello, Trinity. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jeff. I serve on staff here at the church, and I'll be giving us our message. If you are new with us, if this is your first time finding us, welcome. We're so glad you joined us. We are in the fourth week of a four-week series uh, through Advent. Now, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to the arrival of Jesus. And we've been looking at this great little passage from um, Isaiah 9. And Isaiah 9 prophesies about this child that was to be born. And he says that the government will be upon his shoulders. And then he gives him four specific names. And we've been talking about each name these last four weeks. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And today we're going to look at the Prince of Peace. Now, throughout the Bible, there's over 400 references to peace. Um, it's a very important topic. The Bible starts with peace. If you remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden. There's no sin, and there is peace in the garden. And it's shortly after that that sin enters the world. But the Bible starts with peace. The Bible ends with peace. Revelation 21, when Jesus returns and will take away all sin, all tears, all death, all pain. There will be peace once more. And I'd love to take, for you to take a second to reflect on how you think we can, peace is best achieved. How is peace best achieved in this world? How do you think peace is best achieved in our country, maybe in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, or with your roommates? As we look at our country today, we see what uh, John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City, calls a cultural peace or negative peace. It's peace attained through the absence of conflict. It says this, if I get rid of a certain power structure, peace will ensue. The goal of this peace is to remove the source of agitation and conflict. And the, but the problem with this sort of peace is if you don't have a positive vision of peace to fill it with, you will turn any threat into a serious threat, and we'll have what we have today, which is cancel culture. Scott Erickson, who's a Christian artist, writes along the same vein. He says that peace in a government can be accomplished by eradicating all innate agency and uniqueness found in the world and end up with a government based on the rule of compliance and the threat of shameful destruction, a kingdom of fear. So as we look at how this world is trying to deal with peace, it's often too through this cancel culture idea. It's through fear. It's through control. But what is a biblical vision of peace? What does the Bible teach us? And the, the word peace in the Hebrew scriptures, also known as the Old Testament, is this word shalom. It's a beautiful word. It's a rich word. It's a deep word, especially when you compare it to our word for peace. Listen to this definition by Cornelius Plantiga. He's a famous theologian. He says this, that what the Hebrew prophets call shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Let me read that again. Isn't that beautiful? That shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. He goes on to say that shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So as we begin to unpack what it means that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, I want to offer this 
theme. That we should consider Jesus as the prince of the way things ought to be. This is what Jesus means when he talks about establishing the kingdom of God. It's what he means when he says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who seek for the way things ought to be. And today we're going to dig into peace. We're going to look at what the Bible says about peace through a gospel lens. And we're going to do that um, in the book of Ephesians. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. Ephesians is a small book near the end of the Bible written by a guy named Paul to a church in a town called Ephesus. Ephesus at one point was a huge cultural center. The, uh, um, the, the palace of Artemis, or the tower of Artemis there, or Diana, was a famous seven wonders of the world. And Paul started this little church in Ephesus. And let's, uh, let's pick it up, chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes this. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh and dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If you're a note taker, we're going to look at three simple points today. We're going to consider point one, a far off hope. Point two, a new humanity. And point three, a seat at the table. So point one, a far off hope. As we jump in today, we need to understand, especially if you are new to Christianity, if you are exploring the faith, we need to understand the relationship and the dynamic that existed between Jew or Israelite and Gentile. They're identified here in, in verse 11 as the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The way that God set apart his people throughout the Old Testament, the Israelite nation, is they were circumcised. That's what, meant, that's what it meant to be an Israelite. It's what it meant to be a child of God. You were a part of God's nation, God's people, if you were circumcised. And everyone else was outside of that, were known as the uncircumcised. So when Paul talks about their circumcised and uncircumcised, Jew and Gentile, he's talking about the entire world. There's no third subset or third group out there. Now, if you look at verse 14, it talks about the dividing wall of hostility between these two groups. Hostility is um, essentially a Greek word for hate. So there's a dividing wall of hate between Jew and in between Gentile. And what caused that hate? Again, we're going we're gonna to go through this pretty quick. If you look down at um, 15, it talks about the commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, what are these rules and regulations that are set forth? 
That's the Old Testament Mosaic law. So essentially, God gave the law to the Israelite people. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He said, this is how I want you to live. And what's unique and interesting about this is God gives them this law as a means for them to be a light among the people. He longed for them to live this way that others would go, man, look at how you're living. I want to come. I want to be a part of who you are. I want to know the one true God. They were meant to be a light. But what happens is they take this law and they use it to despise the other nations. They think of themselves as better than the other nations. And so the Jews come to despise the Gentiles and the Gentiles, because they're despised by the Jews, come and despise them. There is this hatred that builds up between Jew and Gentile. This is especially um, pertinent as they come back from, the Jews come back from Babylon after exile. They look at their history and they go, man, when we interacted with other nations and went wrong from us, we're going to look inward. We're going to put a wall up. We aren't going to let anyone else in and we're going to look down on those that are outside of us. A great example of this is in Luke 18, verse 11. It's the most honest, terrible prayer in the Bible. Um, it's a Pharisee, a, a, a religious leader, who's standing by himself, and he prays this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This were the Jews at the time. God, thank you for who I am. Don't make me like all of them beneath me. Now, let me contextualize this for a minute, um, just so we don't think that this is an isolated incident depend, uh, specific to the Jewish people. Now, the church is meant to be a gift from God, a blessing, a, sitting on a, a city on a hill, a light. The bride of Christ is meant to bring the hope of the gospel to a lost and hurting world. But a church who loses its saltiness, whose light is dimmed, who no longer makes an impact, is a church that starts to look inward, that starts to bicker about inside language and conversations. It takes a posture of us against the world, that we need to shield ourselves from the world. And I'm so grateful and thankful for our community here. I mean, from day one at Trinity, we've had a posture of looking outwards, of loving our neighbor, of serving the poor and the marginalized, of taking the gospel out into the community. So thankful that our church has been one that has continually looked out beyond itself. And the key to maintaining this posture as we move forward, as we um, kind of grow and age as a church, the key to maintaining this is to never forget that we were once alienated from God, separated from his love. This is verse 12. But he brought us in by his grace. And because of that, we can invite others in as well. There is a far off hope for all who are outside of God's grace. They are all invited in. Point two, let's look at a new humanity. In verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, for he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
Now, Paul's referring here, when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility, he's referring to the divide that existed between Gentile and Jew spiritually. But he's also referring to a literal stone wall that in Jerusalem ran between the temple and the Gentile courts. There was a wall that ran right in the middle. And on that wall was an inscription in both Greek and Latin. And it said this, No one of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure round the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Do you get that? Whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. If you cross that wall, we will kill you. Walls are meant to divide us, aren't they? Good and bad, we put them up. There's controversy over the wall that's being built in our country, right? There's a wall that um, goes around China to, to around its bordering countries. Many of you who are a little more seasoned remember the wall that came down between East and West Germany. Even kids, if you're listening to this, how many times have you been in the car, in the back seat of the car, maybe on a road trip, and you look at your brother and sister and you go, you draw that imaginary line down the seat and you go, this is my side, that's your side. Don't cross the line, right? But inevitably, usually a younger sibling always has to try to cross that line enduring the hostility of their older brother or sister. But do you know what eventually led to Paul's arrest? The arrest that then took him to Rome, where he was imprisoned and eventually died. Paul brought an Ephesian, a Greek Ephesian named Trophimus, across the dividing wall into the temple. This is in Acts 21, verse 27. I would encourage you to go back and read that. He brings an Ephesian across the wall, and for this he is arrested. But Paul understood what, why Jesus came. He came to break down the wall. God's purpose is to take these two groups, Jew and Gentile, and make them one. This is, this is Ephesians 2.15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Tim Keller says that in doing this, he is making a new humanity. And this new humanity, what we would call becoming a Christian, creates a connection stronger and deeper than any other connection you have, including your culture, your race, your class, your citizenship. It could also include your family, your neighbors, your co-workers. What it means is that we are first and foremost believers in Jesus together. That means we have a, a deeper connection to, to believers in Russia, to believers in Iran, to believers in South America, to poor Christians in India, right? To poor Christians that are in the South, to Christians, wealthy Christians in New York City, that we are connected as a church to believers across this world. And we have a deeper connection than any connection that, connection that could be made in your life. Why? Because we understand our sin. And together we understand what Jesus did for us. The gospel should and can unite all people in ways that cultures, classes, and races will never be able to. 
Therefore, the church can become a new humanity, a new nation, a new people. When we understand this, and look at the end of verse 15, when we understand this, we see all the hostility and the turmoil. And we go, this is how God makes peace. The kingdom of God is the only way true peace can exist. It's the new humanity that we know as the church, as the body of Christ. Point number three, a seat at the table. Paul continues, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility is killed not through good works, not through friendships. It's killed through the cross. He put to death their hate. God had every right to kill us because of our hostility. We rebelled against him, the creator of this world. He has every right to judge us because of our actions. But instead of doing that, he kills the hostility in us through Jesus. Do you get that? He could kill us for our hostility, but instead he kills the hostility in us through Jesus. And when he says us, look at 17. It says he came and preached peace to those who were far off. Who, who were those that were far off? The Gentiles. That is good news for you and for me. That means we have access to God through Jesus, but not just the Gentiles. If we continue in 17, it says, and peace to those who were near. Who is near? It's the Jews. So both Gentile and Jew need to be preached to. Both Gentile and Jew need the saving work of Jesus in their life and heart. The gospel destroys what Tim Keller calls the pecking order of life. There is distinctions and differences between us that should be celebrated, but there is no situation where one person is greater than the other. We have all received a free gift of Jesus, and we come together as a new humanity to serve and love one another and to seek peace in this world. See that distinction? When I was in junior high, maybe if you're in junior high or high school, you can connect to this story. When I was in junior high, I remember on a Sunday morning, I remember this distinctly. I came into my youth group and uh, I went to, I grew up in church in Escondido and I walk into the youth group room and there was a girl there that I went to school with and she was not didn't go to church there, didn't go to church at all, was not from a Christian family. And I walk in and I looked at her and she was dressed in a pretty dress. You could tell she was nervous. She was standing by herself. And I looked at her and I went, Shannon, what are you doing here? She kind of laughed. She got really red in the face and embarrassed. And to my memory, she never returned back to church. And I have, that, that situation has haunted me for so many years. Because I had the audacity to think that I deserved or had the right to be at that church and she did not. Like because my parents took me, because I grew up in a Christian household, that I had a right to be there. I didn't understand the gospel at all at that age. And God has used that story so much in my life to humble me to go, man, all are welcome within my walls. All are welcome to come to me. Friends, don't forget 
that you deserve nothing, nothing. But God has given you everything in Jesus. Let me close by coming, bringing it back to that little baby in a manger who was born 2,000 years ago. What do the angels sing when the shepherds come, when, the, when they come to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks at night? Glory to God in the highest and peace among those whom he is pleased. When Jesus was born, they tried to kill him. Do you remember the story? Herod finds out that a king was to be born and has all boys aged two years and younger killed. This innocent baby, this prince of peace that is born in a manger was, tried, was sought after to be killed. But they couldn't kill him there because it was not the purpose with which he came. But 33 years later, they did kill him. They did kill him because he willingly went to the cross. He willingly went to bring about peace in our hearts, in our homes, and in our world. He went to the cross to establish a new humanity. May we never forget that without the grace and love of Jesus, we would be separated from God and alienated from his promises. May that always drive us to humility. May that always drive us to, to look outward and never inward. To love our neighbors. To seek peace in our families. This is a challenging couple days coming up for a lot of people. Christmas is five days from now. And I want you to remember that Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Maybe in your family, maybe in your street, maybe with your roommates or coworkers. You need to be a peacemaker. Taking the humility that says, man, I, I don't deserve anything, but God's given me everything. Allow me to go out to bring his peace to a world that so desperately needs it. Let me close this today by reading a quote from Henry Nouwen talking about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. He writes this. Keep your eyes on the Prince of Peace, the one who doesn't cling to his divine power, the one who refuses to turn stones into bread, jump from great heights, and rule with great power, the one who says, blessed are the poor, the gentle, those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers and those who are persecuted in the cause of uprightness, the one who touches the lame, the crippled, and the blind, the one who speaks words of forgiveness and encouragement, the one who dies alone, rejected and despised. Keep your eyes on him who becomes poor with the poor, weak with the weak, and who is rejected with the rejected. He is the source of all peace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we have a seat at the table. You've invited us to your table to be a part of your family. Not out of our birthright, not out of morality, good works, but simply out of your love for us. That you have taken two people who are so divided, the Jews and the Gentiles, and you said, no, no, there is one in Christ. That together we can 
seek your peace. We can put aside our differences. We can love one another, not because it's easy, but because you've loved us when I know it wasn't easy. We do it because we haven't earned anything from you. It's all been given to us. And so I pray that we would go out today, we would love people with, with your grace, with your mercy, and with your peace, seeking to, to spread your love. May that go into our families, to our neighborhoods, into our offices, and may it be felt in our church. May we always be a church that seeks to take your love out into the community. Lord, we pray for your peace to come in our country, in our world right now. There's so much instability, but we know that you are here. And you say to your kids, blessed are the peacemakers. May we go forward as peacemakers today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.